sometimes, depending on where the manuscript sits at that point, it will go through a second re- edit with her. And then it'll go to the beta team. If there's stuff that comes back in the beta team, it's usually things that I can fix. Like I've messed up some ballistics or like I had one one engineer correct me on the use of cement versus concrete. Um, I'll never forget that one. <laughs> I had no was, idea there was a difference. <laughs> there is a difference. And he was very clear <laughs> what the difference is. Welcome to The Right Note, a podcast dedicated to the independent author. From the craft of storytelling to the business side of publication, we cover it all. I'm Jay Ryan Fenzel. And I'm Kira F. Jacobs. And this is The Right Note. In this episode, we welcome thriller author Jack Arbor to discuss a wayward Russian assassin, the Cold War, and the benefits of an extensive beta reader list. Welcome back to The Right Note. Remember to join our community and follow us on Instagram at The Right Note Podcast. And if you like what you hear, post a nice comment about the show on podchaser.com. We're going to talk with Jack in a bit about his uh, Russian Assassin series, which delves into the Cold War for a lot of its source material. Now, I lived through the Cold War, but Kira, you were born years after it ended. So a quick question. What do you know about the Cold War? Okay. I I remember going through a Cold War unit in high school, and I actually remember being very interested in it because it was the first time I was introduced or I was made aware of the mind games that countries play with each other, not necessarily artillery attacks or aerial attacks or just physical things that you think of when you think of war. This is the first time that I was introduced to like the politics behind it and the secrets and the deception and all that. So I was really interested in it. But what to me, when I think of the Cold War, I think of countries trying to race against each other to be better, but in a secret way, <laughs> because they're trying to protect themselves and they're almost fearful of one another. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of why wars start too, you know, the, mm-hmm. they're trying to protect their own interest. But in the Cold War, like you said it, that it wasn't an all-out artillery, guns blazing things. That's why and they, they termed that a hot war. They coined the Cold War because that kind of war wasn't going on. But there there was, in a lot of ways, a war going on. Mm-hmm. Now, pull up a chair because Dad's going to give you a quick <laughs> what it was like to live during the Cold War history lesson. You can pretty much say that the Cold War began as soon as World War II ended. And I don't know if you realize this, but... Russia and the U.S. were actually allies in World War II, and we were kind of allies of uh, necessity because we had to defeat Nazi Germany, which we did. But then at the end of the war, they they split Berlin into east and west, and, and the Russians had the, the east and the, the U.S. occupied the west. Right after the war ended, and it wasn't that long after it, the Soviet Union were able to develop their own nuclear bomb, and then they built the Berlin Wall. And these tensions started heightening between our two countries because they started getting more and more belligerent because they had the superpower for weapon two. I mean, like the first secretary of the Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev, went to the UN and he pounded his shoe on the table and he says, we will bury you. And the world's freaking out because for the first time ever, 
we could actually destroy the world. And actually, in during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, where the Russia tried to build a little missile base in Cuba with the help of Fidel Castro, who was also a communist, right? And Kennedy was like, there's no way we can let them park these missiles right off the Florida coast. And that was pretty much the documented closest time we ever came to actually launching uh, at each other. And, and it was through events like this, they came up with this, it's called the MAD doctrine. And MAD is a, it's an acronym for mutually assured destruction, meaning if they launch on us, we launch on them and the world loses, everything's gone. Mm-hmm. And some groups started an Armageddon clock. And what they would do with that was like when something like the Cuban Missile Crisis would happen, they'd move the hands to like two minutes to midnight, meaning if it hits midnight, the world's gone. And it just was such a stressful, high tension time period for like 30, 40 years, we were on edge every day. And it affected our culture. I mean, a lot of the popular movies address this fear of the nuclear Armageddon, like Dr. Strangelove and uh, On the Beach and The Hunt for Red October and War Games. And there's a TV movie called The Day After, which was, it depicted what the United States would be like after a nuclear exchange. And in the songs too, I mean, the songs in the 80s, I mean, they were fun songs, right? But it it was kind of like, hey, uh, let's all try to have fun because tomorrow, man, we may not be here. You know, songs like 99 Red Balloons, that that, uh, the German language song Mm -hmm. is about nuclear Armageddon, really. You listen to the words. Prince's 1999, he talks about everybody's got a bomb. We can all die here today. Men at Work had a song called It's a Mistake. Sting, you know, from the police, he had a song called Russians. And it was kind of the only thing that's going to save us is if the Russians love their children like we do and they won't start this war, you know. So this went on and on. And then instead of having an actual war between the U.S. and Russia, there were proxy wars that happened. So we wouldn't have this direct confrontation, you know. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, little coups down in South America. I mean, they were all proxies playing out these war scenarios instead of the U.S. and Russia doing it. And this went on until like Reagan was elected in the U.S. and then Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. And Reagan, his his philosophy was peace through strength. And he started building up our, our arsenal, our nuclear arsenal. And he wanted to develop something called the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, which the tractors called it the Star Wars Defense Plan. But it, actually what it was, was satellites that can shoot down missiles, right? And the Soviets were freaked out by this because if we were able to shoot their missiles down, they, they would see themselves as defenseless, you know? So they would try to build their, their arsenal up to counter this. And what happened is their system was not a healthy economic system. And they couldn't keep up. And in 1989, the Soviet Union, which is a bunch of Eastern Bloc countries under the influence of Russia, they dissolved not long after the Berlin Wall fell, I think November 9th, 1989. The Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet republics slowly dissolved into their own countries again, like the Czech Republic and Poland and all that. And for all intents and purposes, the U.S. won the Cold War. And I I like what... um, how Reagan put it once, he says, we spent them into oblivion. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't keep up. That's my little dissertation on the Cold War. So I don't know how, when you were growing up here, if you felt this um, impending possibility of nuclear war or not. I mean, did you feel that growing up? I never thought 
I don't think I was really aware of it growing up because I I think more for me I remember the the 9/11 stage because I was born at that time and that was kind of like what everyone referred to or talked about. I do know that when I kind of became more aware of the fact that we all have nuclear weapons, it kind of freaked me out, but I remember being much older actually. Yeah, I think I mean the threat's still here. It's obviously still around, but it's not like it's not like it was. It's not because everyone was so afraid that because because every little thing that happened in the world, it was the Soviets did something and we yeah. had to respond or we did something and they had to respond. And, and when it was like top of mind, every, they had like in the 50s, 60s. I don't know if you've ever seen those those school drills they had kids yes. do the duck and cover. We watched those in school during the unit where we were learning about the Cold War. And I do remember thinking that that was bizarre. Yeah. Somehow that had to affect the psyche of my generation, you know? Oh, yeah. I think it's kind of similar to nowadays how my generation and below, they practice for like active shooter situations because that's more of like a this could happen and has a big probability that it will. I think it's kind of similar to that in a way. Yeah. I mean, I guess for your generation, I mean, that's the thing. Like 9-11 is your guys' big thing to really impact you. Because you guys are, how old were you, five or six or something like that? No, I was younger. 2001? Well, what, 2001? I was three. And we kept you away from when it happened. But it was still like, I mean, because we went into Iraq and in Afghanistan and all that. So you kind of were, it's kind of like your generations, we grew up Mm -hmm. with it. And then the other thing is the school shootings. Yeah. We didn't have that. We didn't have that at all. I mean, different generation, different things to freak you out. But today's show, we're looking at the Cold War because our guest has kind of tapped into that for his uh, thriller series. And we're going to take the Cold War as our theme for the Characters King this week. <laughs> so this week, Characters King, we are going to pick characters that we think are great creations from books, TV, poems, music, what have you. And this week, it's the Cold War edition. And we're going to pick our favorite Cold War character. Now, this is very unfair to Kira because Kira admitted she is not a student of the Cold War. Yes. So would you like me to go first or would you like to go first? (sighs) (laughs) Let me go and get it over with because I know you're going to be like, that does not count. (laughs) But I have reasons behind it. Okay. 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 And you will tell us those reasons too. So the reason that I think that this could not count is because it is both a character and a real person so the character that i'm going with for characters king cold war edition is jim lovell do you know who this is astronaut jim lovell right yes and the reason i'm picking him okay is because of the movie apollo 13 played by tom hanks he played jim lovell and that movie first of all wonderful But the actual mission of Apollo 13 happened April of 1970, kind of right in the middle of like we had this race of who could do what in space. You know, it's the same. It's the same thought of like we need to be better than the person next door. So that is kind of why I I picked that. But the reason I picked the character I remember watching this movie and I had no idea what Apollo 13 was because again, out of my time, but I remember watching the movie and loving the fact that these guys, they were so smart and innovative 
on how to survive like this crazy, insane situation. And I remember being really encouraged and moved by that movie. And I honestly kind of became obsessed with Apollo 13 after that. And I think Tom Hanks just does a wonderful job portraying the character. And also Kevin Bacon's in that movie. So can we just, obviously, it's going to be a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kira, that's actually a really good pick. Because um, Jim Lovell, right? But he's a real person, though. But no, that okay, that is a slight technicality that we do fictional <laughs> characters. Yeah. I'm going to let slide because I'm going to let slide. <laughs> I come in with this <laughs> memoir type character. Anyway, to me, when when I watched the movie, to me, I knew it wasn't fiction, but I, that was like the first time I had really heard of Apollo 13. And so I was introduced to that story through people portraying the real astronauts. Well, that was actually a, a good thing. If he was a fictional guy, it'd be even better. Right. But Jim Lovell, great. It, it, the space race was part of the Cold War. No doubt about it, you know. And Jim Lovell was also an, uh, a fighter pilot, a fighter pilot. So he did control the skies against the Soviet threat, too. So uh, that was actually not a bad pick, Kira. Thank you. <laughs> a true life person, however. <laughs> But we're going we're gonna to let it go because Jim Lovell and Tom Hanks are great guys. And Tom Hanks is not Jim Lovell. So there's my loophole. <laughs> Say that again. Tom <laughs> Hanks is not Jim Lovell. So that's my loophole. He portrayed a, a, a real person, but he himself is not that. <laughs> well, you're saying what made it okay was because... Tom Hanks' portrayal of a real guy. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one slide. And we're going we're gonna to go on to my pick. Okay. So my pick for character seeing Cold War Edition is Marco Ramius from The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. In the movie, he was played by Sean Connery, who was at the peak of his career at that time. It was, I think the movie came out in 1990, but the book came out. Uh, early 80s. Uh, it's a, the story supposedly took place in 1984. Now, do you know the, the story of The Hunt for Red October? I do, because of you, actually, though. Yes. But Marco Ramius was a Soviet submarine commander who was put in charge of, in the story, the, the Red October is a new submarine that has a completely silent propulsion system, meaning it's virtually undetectable. And he has orders to go and do these war games with the Soviet Navy. And he disobeys orders and disappears and starts heading for the U.S. And everybody freaks out because they think Ramius has gone crazy and he's gone rogue and he's going over and he's going to launch a first strike on the U.S. because this submarine can get in close, launch missiles, and we won't even know it's there. And then this is the first appearance by Jack Ryan, which is one of Clancy's, it actually is Clancy's most famous character, right? And uh, Jack Ryan's a, a CIA analyst, and he read up on Ramius, and he actually met him once at some function in the in the Soviet Union. And he has a theory that Ramius is actually not coming here to launch missiles, but he's coming here to defect. And the whole movie is uh, the U.S. and then the Soviet Navy's trying to find the submarine and trying to 
destroy it or stop it. And Ryan has to try to convince people that I think he's trying to defect. We need to we need to try and contact him and know him. Tension builds up, and it's a really good movie. And what ultimately happens, Ramius ends up personifying the hope that we all had during the Cold War, is that the foolish doomsday brinksmanship that goes on between our two countries at some point has to stop. And he ends up, and I'm going to, spoiler alert, he does end up, um, it's revealed that he is trying to defect. And his reason is when he saw the plans for the Red October and it was it was a silent submarine that could launch a first strike undetected, he goes, that's too much of a temptation to use it. And uh, we can't, like, you couldn't let that happen because he knows what would happen, you know, if that if that ever came to pass. So Mark Aramius was uh, uh, it, it was an odd person to be a hero at the time because he was a Soviet submarine command, you know, our, our, uh, our big enemy. But yeah, it's a great movie. Great portrayed. Excellent by uh, Sean Connery. And that's my pick. That's a good pick. And there you have it. Characters King Cold War Edition. Marco Ramius and Jim Lovell <laughs> as portrayed by Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> and let us know if uh, our pick for Characters King made sense to you. Or if you had some other ideas for Characters King, let us know at the Right Note Podcast. And, uh, and we'll discuss it. And now it's time to welcome our guest, thriller author Jack Arbor, to the right note. Jack is an Amazon best-selling author of six thriller novels. Uh, he grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but has lived in Colorado since the turn of the century, since 2000. Uh, he works as a technology executive during the day and writes at night and on weekends with the love and support of his wife, Jill. And I would be remiss not to comment on the cuteness of Jack and Jill, but uh, together, <laughs> they, together they enjoy run, uh, trail running and hugging through the natural beauty of the Roaring Fork Valley. Jack enjoys tasting new bourbons and listening to jazz. And his mother's love for the Detroit Tigers has rubbed off on him, and he remains an avid fan to this day. His book series is an international espionage saga spanning six novels and follows the exploits of wayward KGB assassin Max Austin as he battles to save his family from ruthless assassins and bring down a Russian conspiracy bent on restoring the power of the old Soviet Union. The series has attained best-selling status on Amazon, and reviewers have described the books as gripping international intrigue, a quick read loaded with action, and an excellent thriller. Jack, welcome to The Right Note. Thanks for having me. When you developed the Max Austin character, did you have a story arc in mind that would span several books? Or did it start with a single standalone novel idea that grew beyond the initial story idea? Well, that's a broad question. So maybe I'll answer in two parts. When I created the character and the series, I wanted to create something that was different than what everybody else was doing. So at the time, this was back in 2013, 2014, there were a lot of, you know, espionage books and, and thrillers being written in the, you know, I guess you could call it the terrorist genre or whatever. And I wanted to do something different and creative. I grew up as a child of the Cold War. And for whatever reason, world history has always been an interest to me, a side interest. And so I wanted to create something that kind of riffed on the idea of the Cold War, but obviously, you know, taking place in modern times. So not really taking place during the Cold War. You know, back in 2013, this was before the world events of today and, you know, the 
war in Ukraine and all of the geopolitical excitement that's happening in that part of the world. And I can't claim that I, you know, obviously thought of that when I came up with this idea, but I wanted to do something different. So that was that was sort of the backdrop of the story. And then as far as the character went, I really wanted to write a anti-hero character. And I spent a lot of time brainstorming and thinking about how to make an anti-hero lovable by the reader and, you know, compounded by the the challenge of writing somebody who was a Russian, you know, was a, a Russian character. And so one of the ways in which I did that was to have that character be a sleeper agent in the West and actually take on a lot of the attributes of being Westernized as part of a, a sleeper agent. And I did some other things to, to try to make the character lovable and, and approachable by a Western reader. So that was some of the genesis of how that came to be. Yeah, I like uh, how you went and kind of patterned the story uh, kind of in a Cold War, kind of echo of a Cold War story. Four years ago, I wanted to do something similar up with the Cold War kind of idea. And I just couldn't put one a story together that I, I, I thought would hang together well enough for a novel. Congratulations on, on getting that done. One, one of the ways in which I did that was by creating a history of Max's family. And so when you start to read the story, it sort of unpeels kind of the layers of the family's history back to the Cold War. So his father, although his father doesn't isn't an actual character in the book, at least in the first book, the history of his father's influence and his father's actions and behaviors and things that his father did during the Cold War as a Belarusian um, spy for the KGB kind of plays into the events in present day. Do you reveal his backstory through like a dual timeline or do you do flashbacks? Is that kind of how you reveal his the backstory? One of the ways in which I tried to make Max approachable is through really articulating how his father influenced Max's childhood and Max as an adult. So one of the themes in the book is the sort of father-son relationship, which, you know, I have in my own, as you know, we all do it, our own relationships with our with our parents. And I had a very unique relationship with my father. And so I wanted to kind of play that up. And I told some of the relationship between he and his father through flashbacks, but I didn't want to, the problem with flashbacks is that they can often take the reader out of the story. Mm-hmm. And so you know, if you read through into the series, you'll see that his father takes on a, a much more a much more active role in the story. Okay. You know, both through Max's eyes and then also through other mechanisms, which I don't want to get into too much because it'll give away some of the some of the twists and turns of the story. Dad and I have talked before about kind of the the issues with almost info dumping when you're trying to reveal your character's backstory and how it does take you out of the main story. So that's cool that you've found a way to weave that in there in a natural way. Did you did you know that your series was going to end up being six books or were you just kind of going to see how far you got? Originally, the series was going to be three books. Okay. And then it was going to be four. And then one of my one of my big influences is jo- Joanna Penn, who you know, she's obviously a big influence on a lot of independent authors and in terms of their writing and and fiction. And I heard on a podcast one time that she, you know, her her opinion was that three books and kind of packaged up into a, you know, into a product uh, makes more sense than two books or or whatever. So some of that influenced me, but really the story just kind of took on a life of its own and ended up (laughs) being six, six books, which 
is positive, you know, there's positives and challenges. Well, that definitely happens. You, you just get into areas with either character or plot that you didn't plan. And if it's working, you keep going with it, you know? That's the one of the great things about, about writing. Yeah, because you learn your characters as you write too, and you want to stay with them. They become a, a part of you, honestly, and you want to keep telling their stories. Yeah, that's super cool. I read that you travel a lot with your wife because she's a travel agent, right? That's correct, yep. Awesome. Do you feel like the your amount of travel has influenced your stories or do you feel inspired as you travel? Is that kind of a big motivation for you? Place for me is a important part of kind of the, the story itself. So, you know, some authors say that the place or setting becomes its own character, so to speak. For me, it adds, you know, using various geographical locations or settings adds a lot of flavor and texture to the story. You know, I obviously live in the United States and to me, writing and and having the, you know, what happens in the U.S. in terms of both culture, pop culture, et cetera, like having that play into a story isn't as exciting or interesting to me as um, what it might be like to have a setting in Prague or, you know, Max initially lives in Paris as a sleeper, Russian sleeper agent and and the textures and the, and the smells and the and the the history and you know the cuisine those kinds of things can add a unique kind of flavor and texture to a story that that is a little bit different than you know putting something into the US so for me that's a big component of my writing i do like to have the characters travel around to various settings and i'll try to pick at least 3 main geographical areas that will add a unique flavor uh, to each of the stories but i do have that travel gene and uh travel bug with you know, my wife and I, we both work in the travel business. So that's part of who we are. But again, I think it's really more about adding the flavor and texture to to the stories that make it a little bit more of a unique adventure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. About three years ago, my wife and I did one of those uh, river cruises up the, the Danube, I think. And we got to see places like Budapest and Prague and things. And, and walking through those streets, I could really see how that could inspire you or, or really paint pictures and, and story ideas can come out just being there. There's also a lot of history, you know, if you think to the Cold War and even back to World War II. Uh, and if you can draw a through line between World War I, World War II and the Cold War, I mean, they're, you know, you could argue that that those three are linked. And so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of geographical areas within Europe and, and Eastern and Western Europe that just play a part in the history and bringing some of that history into the story, I think, is also fun. Like, for example, Vienna is known as sort of the, the gateway between the East or the, you know, sort of the Iron Curtain and the West. And then you've obviously got Berlin and the, you know, the wall in Germany and how and the impact on, you know, that whole experience between East and West Germany. And those kinds of things can add a lot of character to the story and backdrop um, in terms of like Max's father and how he was behaving and so on. So I think that part is also important. I mean, just being able to go into the Czech Republic now, when back in the Cold War, it was it was part of the Soviet bloc, and you weren't getting in there, or if you did, you weren't probably getting out. But it, it probably really helps to be able to to travel to those places too. You know, I think one of the most impressive things I remember from our trip was being able to stand in in Zeppelin Field. I think that uh, Nuremberg was where that was. Don't quote me on that, but. It was it was the the field and the 
the stands and the columns and that that Hitler made to have his big Nazi parades. And I remember watching newsreels on this, you know, growing up and everything. And standing in that spot, looking around at what was left of it, it was just so impressive to me, you know. So I got, I got another funnier question, kind of. Switching gears just a little bit, James Cameron has said that he came up with the idea for the Terminator when he was sick with a fever in Rome in 1981. And he had this fever dream of this metallic skeleton emerging from the flames, you know. And that's where his idea from the Terminator came. I've read that... You started your writing journey through kind of a similar experience. Could you share that with us? Well, first of all, I mean, James Cameron is a, is he's obviously a pro and he's a, a pillar of storytelling. And so even just to be in the same conversation. But um, so for me, maybe the best way to tell the story is a, a little bit of my sort of heritage or how I came into the writing, into writing. Um, I grew up very left brained, if you will. My grandfather, who I was very close to, was a, you know, grew up in the Great Depression. And my grandfather's guidance to me as I was growing up was learn a trade that you can always get a job doing. And in his mind, that meant some kind of profession, uh, be a lawyer or doctor or an accountant or, you know, something of that nature. And so he, he, you know, I was sort of conditioned growing up to think that way. And I grew up in a household where it was sort of, you just expected that, you know, you would go to college and then you would meet your sweetheart, you would get married, you would get a mortgage, you'd do sort of the standard thing. And I, I was not, um, there wasn't a lot of right brain activity going on in my childhood. So I went through that progression, went to college, got some degrees, and I ended up through, to make a longer story short here, ended up living in India for a year. And I was working in technology at the time. And it was 2002. And up until that point, I had been a, a voracious reader. I didn't have a television growing up. And so I read a lot of books. And I always had the th the notion in the back of my mind, I think a lot of writers feel this way, that I can write a better book than what I'm reading. <laughs> like that was always sort of in the back of my head. You know, you read. Yeah, we, we say that all the time. Oh, I hear you. <laughs> right. Like, I think a lot of writers think that way. And I think a lot of writers end up writing because they're like, oh, I can write a better story. So, anyway, I always had that in the back of my head, but I never gave myself the permission to do some writing. So, anyway, I ended up in India and I got really sick. And I ended up with a stomach parasite. And it was the month of August and it was so hot. And there wasn't anything I could do other than lay on the marble floor and try to get cool. And as when you get that sick with stomach parasite, you can start to hallucinate. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not a drug user. I'll just put that out there. I'm not a drug user, but I can imagine that, you know, <laughs> you, I don't know how James Cameron came up with that, you know, hallucination or whatever he did. I don't want to get into that. Um, but I can, and this parasite, I, I was literally hallucinating for probably about a week. And I think that out of mind and out of body experience for me, led me to then want to start writing to pass the time while I was getting better in 120 degree New Delhi, India, uh, because it's the only thing that I could do. And it, it, it kind of jolted me out of, I guess, jolted me out of my uh, left brain thinking and, and maybe triggered my right brain into wanting to, to do some writing. So I started writing. Um, it was garbage. I mean, it was I had no idea what I was doing. 
And I think at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know how to become a writer. I didn't know how to teach myself how to, to write. And it literally took me another 13 years of struggling through the learning process to learn how to write, learn how to structure, learn how to develop character, learn how to think about the concepts of story. I wrote two novels during that time, both of which are still, quote unquote, on the shelf on my hard drive, but on the shelf. And it wasn't until my third novel that we got it, we being sort of me and my editor got it to the point where, you know, it was publishable. And that became The Russian Assassin, which was published in 2016. Oh, super cool. Long road. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a funny story, too. Like just super interesting backstory there. When you decided that you wanted to publish, was the plan always to go the independent publishing route? Because dad and I are both indie authors. So that's the route that we both took. And, you know, we have our own experiences and why we decided that. But um, was that always the, the route for you? Glad you asked that question. So my journey with independent publishing came really on a confluence of two concepts. One is, and I'll, I'll admit this publicly, I guess now, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think actually this happens to a lot of writers. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of, uh, you know, we're all in this together. But I think that the the uh, the gatekeeper concept of traditional publishing, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I, maybe to say it a different way, the process of pitching your writing to an authority on writing and sort of getting over that hump into the traditional publishing ecosystem where you've gone through pitch after pitch after pitch, I think at the time was something that I was either I don't, afraid to do, didn't want to do. I had some kind of resistance, maybe like a Stephen Pressfield kind of resistance to that. And I saw in independent publishing as a way to level the playing field in terms of may the best writing rise to the top and be judged by my readers as opposed to being judged by uh, the writing establishment. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of one trajectory. The second trajectory was that I always wanted to start my own business. And independent writing is, as you guys know, is half writing, half business. Right. Yeah. You're, right. You're going to do your own marketing. You're going to create your own brand. You're going to, you know, hire your own PR. You're going to do, you know, hire your own editing. You're going to uh, manage your own books. You're going to figure out how to pay taxes, what kind of corporation, all of the things. So half writing, half business. And I, and I thought if I could put those two things together, that that would be something that I would really want to go try to achieve mm-hmm. on a personal level. And it wasn't until I heard Joanna Penn's you know, podcast series that I really cl- it clicked in my mind that like this is actually a possible route for me to go. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if you were to get a traditional publishing contract, I mean, For an unknown author, it's typically not a really lucrative contract anyway, and you're going to end up doing a lot of the marketing work anyway. And that was kind of my thinking too, is like, and and I come from an engineering background, so these like project management type things in my head is like, yeah, I can do this. You know, I can set up this business and then, and, 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 and writers don't like to do this and artists in particular don't like to do this, but you think of your book or your art quote as a product and you have to sell your product and you have to believe in your product to really sell it well i don't know if this is if you've noticed this with you but the best sales tool i have is me talking to somebody about my books and telling them hey you know here's my story about this here's why i love it and i here's why i wanted to write it and and uh you know i'd go around and do these uh 
these shows around the state, uh, art and craft shows, or whatever, and set up my, my booth and things. And people who are interested in books would come up. I knew they were interested in the product. And then you talk and become a salesman. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's this tension between art and commerce, obviously. And I think writers, I think, need to consciously decide where they want to be personally on that spectrum. And there's room for all sides of it, you know, all parts of the spectrum. I think if if a writer is particularly interested in the art and the literary aspects of writing, that there's there's room for that. Now they may, you know, that may not generate a lot of revenue, it may not make enough money to sustain being a writer full time, but that's certainly an avenue. I think if you you're writing fiction, you're enjoying the process and you're enjoying the artistic creativity of the writing process, but that you're interested in making some money in that process, then I think coming up with what the technology companies call product market fit is super important. And the the process of designing a product, a novel, whatever you want to call it, in order to have it appeal to a segment of population that's going to pay for it, there's a business lens to that as well. And I think that, you know, I think writers can decide where they want to be on that spectrum. But if you want to make money in this business, the reality is you probably have to come up with products that people want to read. And there's a structure to that and a, and a cadence to coming up with, with stories that, that appeal to a, a wide readership. Nobody wants to widgetize the fiction making process. But the reality is, is that you have to design a story. You have to design a character you have to design the world of the, the novel of whatever you're writing in order for it to appeal to public that's going to pay five or ten dollars um, for your for your book. So, you know, there's techniques you can follow to kind of to go through that. You can develop a beta reader list. You can write novellas. You can you know, you can there's different ways to, to test product market fit. Yeah. In general, I think writers desire to be read and for someone to want to read your books or your writing then you got to make it something that they want to read if it's something that only you enjoy you're not going to get very many eyes on it so i mean that's kind of what you're saying with the product market fit thing there uh and and it doesn't mean uh, and i think a lot of people feel that means that you're you're well selling out or you're just being commercial and not artistic or whatever i don't think that means that at all it's more of a challenge to to maintain your creativity and, and, and your artistic vision of things and make it work into a scheme or a model or something that people like to enjoy reading too. You know, I think it's more of a challenge actually. Right. And the the reality of it is, is that the traditional publishing process of pitching your story to an agent or pitching your story to an editor, and then if you get past that first stage to the editing process. That's exactly what that process is. And that's what that process is designed to filter out is books and stories that make it into the marketplace that people want to read. And that's what tra- you know traditional publishing companies want to invest in. And when they find a model, whether it's um, you know Jack Reacher or Vince Flynn or Jason Bourne or whenever they find a model that works, then obviously they want more of that sort of same style of story. And that's what that traditional process is. If you're a screenwriter, and you're trying to sell into Hollywood, there's an exact same process where they're trying to form the product into something that is going to do well in the marketplace. And with that model too, it's like, it, it seems to me what uh, happens, not just in books and movies and everything like that, but somebody come out with a book or a movie that's super popular and all of a sudden the market's flooded with the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they kind of they kind of kill the trend or, or whatever you want to call it. 
Gone Girl was like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've read in some articles like if you decide to write a book and you're and you want to write the latest trend, you're already too late because by the time you write it, edit it, market it, and get it the out, trend's over, the yeah. trend is over. Right. So write what you want, what you enjoy, what's going to keep you enthralled for two, three years. And and your love of the story will come through in your writing, I think. That's true. And I, I can't take credit for this because I, I didn't pre-think this. You know, now there's more books that are coming out that are centered in kind of the kind of the Russian geopolitical thing that's going on. And and I've read a few of them and they're good. But, um, you know, back in 2013, when I first started working on Max, I just wanted to do something that was different. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And have you seen the uh, Jack Ryan mm -hmm. series at all? Yeah. The season three, its storyline is sort of the the Soviet Union trying to do a plan to bring themselves back to power. It's kind of a, a, a similar idea. Yep. And, and and you're right. And I, I think all this happens because, hey, geopolitically, boom, that just happened. So let's let's all uh, kind of capitalize on that. You know, um, I'm going to back into writing again just a little bit here. I've read from a reviewer who is uh, writing about your books and he commented about your character descriptions. And he says, when he, him meaning Jack Arbor, right? When he introduces a new face, he describes it with just a few sparse lines, like the best sketch artist. And then he goes on to say that this is a very effective and memorable writing technique. Can you walk us through the approach when, you, when you're writing character descriptions and, and how, do you, how do you approach that? Sure, that's, that's, that's a great review. I should go find that review actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't tend to read a lot of my reviews. Probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually, Kira, you said on a previous podcast that reviews are for other readers. And I, I think that's probably true. But anyway, so to, to this question, in, in my view, you don't want to tell the reader too much. So readers, while they're reading a story, will create their own fictive environment in their own head their own vision and view or movie of the story in their own head. And readers will bring their own backgrounds and their own perspectives and their own views of the world to the story. And they will then create the, their own story experience for themselves. And as a writer, my view in a way is you don't want to give them too much because what you're doing is you're getting in the way of that experience that the reader is going to have. They're going to do anyway. If you try to tell them too many things, they're going to get lost in the detail. They're going to get lost in too much description. And if you try to force feed a description into the reader's head, they're, can, they're only going to take a certain amount into their head as they're creating this sort of fictive experience while they're, while they're reading. You want to give them just enough, just the key Im important aspects of the character that are super critical to the story itself. And then they will, the reader will then fill in everything else in their own way. And that's how you want to create that reading experience for the, for the reader. Now, there's a couple of different things, in my view, that you want to do in that process. One is, is anything that's relevant to the story. So if there's, a, you know, if there's some characterization of how the, char you know, the character behaves that's super important to the story outcome or a subplot or um, a twist or any of those things, obviously, you want to include those. And then you also want to give the reader, and, and particularly in, in, in the world that I write in where names can be super complicated or maybe they're foreign names and they're hard to kind of pick up, you want to give the reader something to hang on to for each character. And so, you know, Max Max is, has a shaved head. He's got big hands. Um, he's 
you know, lanky, and that's it. And then the reader can sort of formulate and whether they want to think about Max as like Jason Stratham, Stratham, for example, or Liam Neeson, for example, or however they want to think about Max in their own head, that's fine. They can do that. I don't, I don't want to get in the way of that. And so maybe that's, maybe that's what the reviewer is referring to. But again, you want to just give the reader just enough, just the key things that, and that way you don't get in the way of the pacing of the story. You don't fill the reader's head up with too much information that's not relevant. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, I never like when you're reading a book and then you get to a new character and then you get the laundry list, right? You know, blue eyes, brown hair, you know, the stuff. And it, and it looks like they're just reading off of a rap sheet or something. And I always try to say, well, to just kind of work it in somehow. And then, like you said, don't go overboard in details because people are going to skip over it. They're not going to remember it. It's going to it's actually going to take you out of the story, really, you know, mm-hmm. if you got a good flow going. So Yeah, that's right. The only other thing I would add, too, is that you don't have to do it all up front. So when you introduce a character, you can give them a couple of things to hang for the reader to hang their hat on. And then you can introduce more aspects of the character in terms of their beliefs and their behaviors and how they view the world over time to kind of round out that character to get them to get the reader where you need them to. But you know, to your point earlier, where you know we're not info dumping, we don't want to info dump. You can dole that information out over time. Oh yeah, and also how other people or other characters see them and comment on them or say, you know, make yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's a great technique. And you know, like the one of the old saw is like, well, the character looked at themselves in the mirror, and you know, they noticed they have you know whatever. And yeah. there's way more you know sophisticated techniques to use. And you just mentioned one of them, which is really good to have a different character point of view comment on that character's perception of the character of the other character uh, which is a great technique to use i've been re- i've read books before <laughs> where all of a sudden in the middle they'll say something like something about his brown hair i don't know and then i'll think oh that's weird like i pictured him with blonde hair and then when it's mentioned i'm like thrown off you you do come up with almost like what you desire the character to look like or how you think that they should be and how how you know what they look like might match their personality or i don't know everyone has their own different thing and that's that is funny because i've definitely had those moments of like what i thought you looked like that my wife and i have a debate about who would play max and you know she always says matt damon and i always say liam neeson and uh she has a crush on matt damon so you know i think that's why she (laughs) brings matt into it that's so funny. I feel like every time people ask me, like, who would who would play your main character? I honestly have no clue. Like, I can't think of one person that would pop into my head. Dad, you told me. Who did you tell me? You told me somebody for Jack, for your character. For Jack Sheridan? At one time, I wanted, wait, he wasn't old. I think, uh, what was, what is his name? He's, he plays in Westerns all the time. Um, <laughs> he's old now. Big mustache. Oh, Sam. Uh, Sam. Sam, Sam Elliott. Elliot. Sam Elliott. Yeah, and then, and then for Michael Measure character, Cade Mitchell. I always thought, I always pictured him as Mark Wahlberg no! for some reason. <laughs> I guess I'd seen him in a movie. I'd seen him in a movie recently, or when I was writing that. That's and, uh, funny. Yeah, it fits, you know? That's so, funny. <laughs> my uh, my 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 character Spencer White. Uh, I envisioned as Sam Elliott. Oh, um, hilarious. But but then he evolved over time, and then I changed you know changed my opinion. I love that. So one of the questions here is really funny. Dad and I were actually chatting about this a little bit beforehand, but 
you have stated that you have nearly 800 people on your beta reading list. And will you kind of elaborate on how you implement your beta reading process? Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. And by the way, I'm always happy to have uh, more people on the on the list. Um, so if anybody's interested, they can go to my website and there's a, a form where they can um, sign up and, and be added to the list. So for me, the beta reading process is a super critical piece of my writing and publishing process, if you will. Before the book gets to the beta reading group, there's only maybe four people that have seen the manuscript. Myself, uh, my editor, uh, my wife, and maybe depending on how things are going, one other person who may have read portions of the manuscript. You know, up until that point, <laughs> I haven't, you know, we haven't tested the story yet to see how it's going to do. So I've built up the a beta reading list and I use a separate email um, list in my email program to kind of gather, you know, this these 800 folks. And I'm very clear with them what the process is. So there's uh, there's a web page, and, and every time we do the beta reading process, every time we kick it off, I reassert kind of what the the guidelines are of the process. And it's it's pretty simple. I provide them with a free copy, free electronic copy of the story. And in exchange, I ask for two things. One is if they're able to email me with any feedback they have on the story. And then the second would be, I ask for an honest Amazon review during the publishing process. It's an honest Amazon review. And I've had plenty of beta readers who have, you know, provided a two or three or four star review uh, during the publish if they didn't, you know, if they <laughs> didn't like the way the story went or whatever. Uh, and that's totally fine. Um, and that's all all part of it. And this this kind of process is very similar to the advanced reader copy process that happens in traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. It's called the ARC process, which I've participated in myself as an author, mm -hmm. where, you know, a reader will send, or excuse me, a writer will send out a book and ask for feedback on, on the book. And usually it's a hard copy instead of an electronic copy. But anyway, so I've got, and, and generally what I've noticed is that in that 800 list of 800, I get maybe 50 people that will email me feedback. Uh, and I've got some in there that are recurring. And every time I get the same emails from the same group of people, a couple of them claim to be, you know, former FBI agents, or there's, I've got a couple of folks who, who claim to be former, you know, CIA officers. You know, I've got people in there who are experts in, in the fields of weaponry, uh, who are correcting me on my web, you know, my use of different uh, ballistics or firearms, those kinds of things. And it's, it's all super helpful. So I get, I think about, you know, 50 people roughly every time who, who email me. And then I would say about a third of that list will then go in and leave an Amazon review as part of the launch process. And the reason that's so important is when the book launches, and if you can get 100 to 200 reviews, doesn't matter if they're two, three, four, five-star reviews, that shows engagement with the book when it launches. And that can really help with the Amazon algorithm, which, you know, as much as we want to ignore the Amazon algorithm, we... If, if there's ways that we can try to work within that algorithm, I think is, you know, all the better to get the book into more people's hands. So that's how that process works. The beta process, I guess there's no one way to do it or there's no one definition of it. Because when me and Kira talked about this before, um, like when you send your your book out to your beta readers, it's it sounds like it's pretty much finished, more or less. Like 
It's gone to your editor. It's gone through your close, personal, trusted, confidant readers. And yeah, if you hear some feedback that really makes sense, you might make some changes or whatever. But when we think about betas, me and Kira, I think it's more like um, I've read it and I've gone through it three, four times, whatever. Then I'll give it to my wife and two or three other people that I've known forever. And I totally trust them to tell me what's working and what's not. You know, and I call them my beta readers, you know. So it's just it's a different kind of shade to that definition of it. Yeah, I, I think mine is is more so maybe just to back up a little bit, I can uh talk about my editing process. So when it goes to the beta team, or you could call them the advanced, sometimes I call them the advanced reader team, which is an acronym for art. So that's kind of fun. When it goes to them, it it's it's been edited a couple of times by my editor. It's been edited by myself. It has not been proofread. So my my process will be I'll go through and I'll write the story and and I have a checklist of you know six or seven different drafts that I'm writing through my writing process. Once I get through that, then it goes to my editor and my editor will do combination of a light story edit. Although at this point in my career now, there's less story editing going on and more line line copy editing. Sometimes depending on where the manuscript sits at that point, it will go through a second edit with her. And then it'll go to the beta team. If there's stuff that comes back in the beta team, it's usually things that I can fix. Like I've messed up some ballistics or like I had one, one engineer correct me on the use of cement versus concrete. Um, I'll never forget that one. <laughs> I had no was, idea there was a difference. <laughs> there is a difference. And he was very clear <laughs> what the difference is. <laughs> um, and so usually it's those kinds of things that I can get sorted out. If, if a beta reader comes back and says, well, I just don't like the story, I'm probably not going to change it at that point realistically because the story is baked. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then once I go through that process, then it goes to my proof reader who will do a, you know, a proof and then we're into the publishing activities. One of my books, uh, I gave to my wife. She's the first one to usually read it. And uh, since it's so early and it hasn't been, you know, it's not baked, like you say, I I got, I wrote the ending a certain way because I thought if I wrote it the other way, she would think my character was cold and heartless. And she read it and she goes, you know what? You should have wrote it the other way. I'm like, are you kidding me? I wrote because I thought you would hate it, you know? And she actually had, I changed my ending because of her, her comments on that, the way I originally wanted to write it, but it just it goes to show you, yeah, you never know, right? Yeah. Yeah. That that's a that's an interesting comment around in terms of how you end a story, you know, which obviously is super important. And what I've noticed too is is um I have a seventh novel coming out this fall and it's in a different series. It's a spin-off series actually of a minor character from book four that has going to become a protagonist. By the way, her uh ironically, her name is also Kira. Fun. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Spelled differently. Um that's cool. But, uh, you know, when you when you're cra- or when I should say when I'm crafting a new world, a new construct or a new frame of the of the story world, I guess, would be like how they would refer to it in, in um, like fantasy and whatnot. Getting that right is super important. And so I will probably spend more time with my in the editing process and maybe with a handful of beta readers to make sure that I get the world right and make sure that it's a compelling enough you know, story construct, if you will. And then when I get into books, you know, and if it and if it resonates, in other words, product market fit, like we were talking about, um, and if it starts, if it resonates, people like it, then I'll I'll start to work on books two and three in that series, and then I'll spend a little bit less time in the editing process because we'll have 
will have baked that world concept and and it's less less important because we've already you know the reader if they're moving into books two and three they've already bought into that world so to speak yeah that that's really hard when you're starting off to get the world right like even even the book that i'm working on now i already can see where i'm gonna have to go back to the beginning and just rebuild a lot of things because as i've gotten farther into the book i'm more comfortable with the world and what like the the laws and rules of the world i guess that i didn't really have set in stone at the very beginning i think that's really important to spend time on that because i've read books where i'm kind of confused about the world it pulls you out of the story when you're confused so i think the first book in a series is the hardest just getting getting all that right yeah, I totally agree. The, like this, this book is um, the the working title of the series is the Japanese Assassin, and the book takes place in uh, Japan and Hong Kong and North Korea. And I have no idea if that theme, Milu, geopolitical, like if that's going to resonate with people or not. I have I have no idea. So I guess we're going to find out. The benefit of. Uh of a series is that you have the world established and if you got readers from your first book captured then hey they're they're on board and they're going with you you know i haven't written a series more than two books with the same characters but it's it's mostly a similar world right it's it's the great lakes region and so forth but the run i'm writing now it's different it's a, like a near future kind of thing you know not too far wacky but and i'm really kind of holding my breath on how it's going to be received by people who, you know, they're letting me know it's been what three or four years since I put a book out. So like, Hey, we're waiting for your next book. And I'm like, okay, well it's coming, you know, and just, you just don't know, like you said, the Japanese milieu is, is it going to sell to the people who love the Russian one? You know? So, yeah, I, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, when I pull my reader list, um, so I have a, you know, a, a much, a, a much larger, just kind of email list of just normal readers, non-beta readers. When I pull them, and I say, would you like a, a new series like this or a new, can I spin off this character or like pick pick what you want me to do? 90% of them reply and say they want me to just write another Max Austin story. That's funny. <laughs> and, you know, the, re- the reason why, and I hate to do this because I have such high regard for Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. But one of the reasons why he's written 20 some books in with Jack Reacher as the main character and following the same form of a novel where, you know, Jack gets himself into some weird trouble. There's some mystery that he's got to go solve. And then he, you know, so on and so forth is because they know that that sells and taking the time to write a different character at a different world, a different structure, a different form is a risk. And Lee and his publisher don't know if that's going to sell. And so, you know, will they, will they go do that? I don't know. James Patterson seems to write in tons of different worlds and tons of different characters. So it's it's a decision, you know, the author has to make about whether they want to invest the time in creating a new set of characters in a new world. I came up with this one during the pandemic and started writing it at when during lockdown, I think it was April of 2020 or whatever that was during the lockdown. And when I finished the Max series, I just kind of picked this one back up and I finished it off and we'll see if it sells. If it if people don't like it, then I've got three or four different ideas to go tackle. The pandemic comes up a lot in our conversations with authors. It does, yeah. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're, you're stuck in quarantine, right? So it really was a, 
kind of an incubator for authors, I think, mm -hmm. the pandemic. Yeah. Well, Jack, I got one more question for you here. So when you finish a manuscript, let's say you, you threw that first draft where you can write the end, what is your go-to celebratory drink? <laughs> uh, is it bourbon or beer? Uh, well, it's funny you ask because my wife gets on me for not celebrating enough. <laughs> you know, my, my first inclination is when I finish the manuscript and I ship it off to you know, wherever I'm shipping it off to is to start the next one. You know, the best way to market a book is to write another book. And I think if, you know, as you guys know, to be an author, you have to just love the process and love writing and, and, and love what you're doing. Otherwise you're just going to drive yourself crazy. Um, so my wife does get on me about that. And I would say it depends. I, I am a fan of bourbon, although I don't I don't drink too much of it anymore. We have been known to get a, a small split of champagne. And then I also have a, a small tradition that I should probably put on social media a little bit more. I don't know if people would care, but for every novel that I write and publish, I buy myself a new fountain pen. Oh, that's cool. I don't think I have any traditions after writing a book. Breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> And uh, start the next one. Start right? the next one, yeah. For me, getting that next idea is sometimes very difficult. Like I was saying, I was in, in between books when I was trying to come up with the Cold War idea. And I'm like, wow, could it be? It got to make sense. It's got to be like be plausible today, but kind of harken back to then. And, you know, and I was watching, I got all these movies out like War Games and On for Red October. I'm going through all this stuff. I'm like, I can't do it, man. I got to, you know. And then, I came up with this story I'm doing now. And actually that derived from back 13 years ago when I was writing short stories with a detective character. And I remembered I wanted to do a novel with this guy. And I kind of remembered the story. I'm like, eh, why not? So Jack, what do you got coming up? So my seventh novel should come out this fall. It might be a little bit later this fall. And like I said, the, the working title, which I, I think I'm probably going to go with is The Japanese Assassin. And if you're interested in getting updates on my progress there, you can go to jackarbor.com and sign up for my email list there. If you're interested in trying out the first book in my series, The Russian Assassin, you can get a free copy off of the front of my website, uh, jackarbor.com. And the only thing I ask for in return is just uh, either an email with how you liked it or a honest Amazon review. Excellent. And where can readers find you to connect with you on social media? I have an Instagram account. It's Jack Arbor. So you can go to at Jack Arbor and feel free to you know ping me there. Uh, I do have a few readers that I interact with uh, through social media there. I could probably be better at social media. Can't we all? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And you know, if if what I, what I try to tell people is if I'm not on social media, it realistically means that I'm writing. And, you know, writers write. And I think in finding this balance between writing and social media and marketing and running the business, I will generally always default to the writing side of the equation, maybe to my detriment. I don't know. Uh, but feel free uh, to follow me on Jack Arbor. I will be doing more videos. I've been trying, I've been, you know, trying uh, shorts and uh, Instagram reels a little bit just to kind of add a little bit of flavor to the, to the, social media, the Instagram account there. Um, I've got a few shorts up on YouTube as well. And and I expect that I'll be doing more of that kind of thing in the future. Awesome. 
Yeah, I watched your uh, your coffee ritual uh, video <laughs> the other day. Yeah, that was very enlightening. <laughs> the funny thing about that is I actually got some on YouTube. You can give somebody the down thumb. Oh, yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, I, I don't know. I got the down thumb on oh, no. YouTube on that one <laughs> a little bit. So. Oh, really? <laughs> I know. I was like, wait, what? Cruel. <laughs> for what reason? <laughs> Just making coffee, man. Just making coffee. That's hilarious. <laughs> I think coffee. I think coffee aficionados are super into their into their coffee thing. So maybe that's I hit a nerve oh, that's there. That's funny. Can't win them all. Well, mine would be boring. It'd be like I'd be scooping coffee into my coffee maker, yeah. and I'd be hitting the button. And you you had this whole process with the pour over and the filter and everything. I was impressed. That's funny. <laughs> all right. Well, hey Jack, we really appreciate you joining us on the right note, and. Kira, any last words? And no, that's not a threat. You always say that to me. (laughs) (laughs) We've had some authors on here that are a little similar. So I think that was a really good, diverse conversation. And I'm really, really excited to hear the episode. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks for having me on. Great. And as we say here at the right note, keep your pen to the page and write on.